Welcome to the Conversation Through Revelation podcast. I'm Tom Walker, your host, and I'm joined by Pastor Brian Broderson and Pastor John Wang. In this episode, the narrative moves from earth to heaven, and we unpack some of the rich symbolism of John's entrance and experience of heaven throughout chapter four. So I'm really excited about these two chapters. I feel like, you know, we had this moment where we had... um, Letters. Brian left his iPad, so um, Bible. <laughs> his Bible. He needs that. Um, yeah, I'm just really, really looking forward to jumping in. Like we had the letters to the churches, and now we're taken into heaven to have a view of what heaven's like. And man, I was just reading this a couple times this week, and I just am so looking forward to diving into it. Um, but yeah, so chapter four, um, we have this view of God the Father, and then chapter five, um, we have this view of God the Son. And so now Brian's back. John, do you want to jump in and, um, and read chapter four for us? Yeah, for sure. Let's read Revelation chapter four. And again, tonight I'm going to be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. After this, I looked and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit and there was a throne in heaven And someone was seated on it. The one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone. A rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their heads. Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Something like a sea of glass similar to crystal was also before the throne. Four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back were around the throne on each side. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. They were covered with eyes around and inside. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, 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 Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and say, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Wow. So good. So I just want to kind of throw this that um, there's a lot of symbolism. There's a lot of animals and winged creatures and eyes and all these sorts of things. Um, And the reality is that the symbols are never as um, impressive as the reality of what this is talking about. So, yeah, I just wanted to say off the bat that, like, think while we're reading this, that the description of these things doesn't even touch the reality of what it's like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was thinking about, um, you know, the four living creatures and, you know, just thinking about, you know, what, 
what each one of them look like. And I, in some ways, you know, you think, you know, one has the, the face of a man, one the face of an ox, the other a lion, uh, the other an eagle. And on the one hand, you think, that sounds so freaky. But on the other hand, I'm sure they're, they're so majestic. You're, they're not freaky at all. You're just like, oh my gosh, those are unbelievable. So we'll find out one day, right? Exactly what's happening there. But um, so there's a lot of stuff here in chapter four. So we've got a big uh, task before us tonight to get through chapter four and five. Um, and, you know, so we've got, um, we, we need to talk about this, this whole idea of these elders, these 24 elders, these thrones. We need to talk about a little bit more about the, um, the four living creatures. And, um, but let's start, uh, John, the, the words, the very first words of chapter four are after these things. And so the things that this is coming after are the things that we've been looking at over the past few weeks, which have been the things of the church, right? So if we go back to chapter one, verse 19, uh, write the things that you've seen, the things that are, and the things that will be after the things that are. So chapter one is what John saw. Chapters two and three are the things that are in the sense of the history of the church. And now what we're talking about are things that are, are post-church. These are the events that are going to happen. Um, we believe um, when the church is uh, actually removed. And I, I think chapter four, verse one could be the rapture passage in the book of Revelation. Because a lot of times people, uh, you know, when you talk about the rapture, I think most people assume like you're talking about the book of Revelation, but uh, the book of Revelation is not our primary yeah. rapture text, right? Um, but I think it's in here and I think it's right here in chapter four, verse one. Mm -hmm. So what do you think? Yeah, I agree with you, Brian. I, I think it's really important um, in, again, what you said, that this is a transition chapter. And from this point on, everything that we're going to be reading in the book of Revelation is future. And here's John on the island of Patmos. And the description of his call to heaven, man, when you parallel that with 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, which is one of the three primary um, New Testament passages for the rapture, um, it, it, it almost looks like you can just overlap it. Yeah. And, and just replace John's name with those who are alive in Christ, you yeah. know? And, um, you know, and, and I know that some people think that, um, that John may have had a vision here and they might reference how Ezekiel, remember when he was caught up between heaven and earth and, and twice in Ezekiel 8, it was described as a vision. But I think that like we talked about on our first study about when John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And we talked about how that could be translated. I was in spirit unto the day of the Lord. Mm -hmm. And then we see that expression again in verse two, immediately I was in the spirit and he's in the presence of God. I, I, I agree with you, Brian. I think that here, even though this was a real experience that John was having, that that we see in him a reflection um, of, of the rapture, mm -hmm. of the experience that one generation in Christian history is going to have in being caught up to be with the Lord. And like you said, John, the, um, the parallels here between what, what stated about, you know, um, there, I heard 
a, a voice that was like a trumpet yeah. speaking to me saying, come up here. And so, you know, First uh, Thessalonians chapter four, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet, yeah. and, you know, uh, those who are alive and remain being caught up. Um, you know, the interesting thing is the book of Revelation, um, all conversation about the church ends uh, here. Yeah. Mm. So we see, uh, as, as we're going to go on and look at the elder, uh, 24 elders and so forth, again, we want to kind of build a case that that is a reference to the church there. Uh, but from that point forward, so when we get through these two chapters tonight and get into 6 through 18 next week, 6 through 18 is the tribulation period. There's no reference to the church ever during that period of time. Yeah. So it seems that, um, you know, just when you look at the structure of the book of Revelation, that even though it's not laid out like 1 Thessalonians 4 or 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul's actually describing, you know, exactly what happens, um, those who are alive or, you know, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. Uh, but if you think of John as... He's sort of the embodiment of the church. Yeah. He's the representative of the church and now, you know, taken up into, um, into the, the presence of the Lord. So, but what about, um, and, then, and then, you know, it says, uh, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. So, of course, the bigger picture is going to be, you know, everything that's going to come. But what about... The so we have we have the description. Uh, I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And here is this glorious description of, of God, you know, sitting upon the throne. And then around the throne, verse four, were twenty four thrones, and on the thrones were twenty four elders sitting. And here's a key: clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. So the big question is. Who are these 24 elders? Yeah. <laughs> Go for it, John. Well, I, I was just um, thinking that, isn't it interesting that these descriptions that are used following chapters 2 and 3, where Jesus was addressing the overcomers, the conquerors. And when you look at those letters, you remember Jesus had promised the overcomers that they would be dressed in white. Mm -hmm. Jesus promised the overcomers that they would receive crowns. Mm -hmm. And nowhere in scripture do we see angels ever being referred to as elders. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting, though, that when you read the New Testament, believers and church leaders are referred to as elders. And, um, and so I, I, I think from just even looking at that, that there's a strong case that can be made that, that Jesus here is addressing these 24 elders that represent the New Testament church. Mm -hmm. I just think the connection between Revelation 2 and 3 is fascinating. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and here's something that I think supports that. In First um, Chronicles chapter 24, David divides the priesthood That's into right. 24 courses. So the 24 groups of priests, they are, they are the, the representatives of the entire priesthood. So there's thousands of priests, yeah. right? But the, these 24 groups and somebody at the head of each group, 
that's a rep- so it's a representative number. Yeah. So again, I think when we when we think about the book of Revelation and interpreting the book of Revelation, uh, the the primary way we're going to interpret Revelation is by um, using the Bible itself. Mm. So this is one of those places where we can go back in the scripture and we can find a parallel with this whole idea of 24 and we see it as representative. So it seems to me that that would make sense that the elders are, the, they represent the church in its entirety. So, but then the question is, but what, what about John? He's, how come he's not one of them? Uh, well, it doesn't, you know, John is, I, I think, I think John is in one sense, you know, he's, he's there, he's viewing, he's reporting. Uh, he's ultimately part of that, but he doesn't necessarily have to understand that or explain that. That's yeah. not his, it's not his job to say, but well, I'm one of those guys too, you know, yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah, yeah. one of the apostles. So I'm just over here <laughs> telling you what's going on because <laughs> people will, yeah. they'll say, oh no, because you know, John, if, if he was, if it was, you know, say, some people say that the 12 apostles would be represented there. Mm-hmm. Well, not necessarily. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's just collectively, uh, whoever these 24 elders are, they are a representation of the whole church. Well, I do have a question that I'd like to ask both of you guys because we've been talking about the rapture um, and I, I'm realizing more and more. I mean, there was a time here at Calvary Chapel because we you know, we were so well taught in prophecy, we would mention the word rapture and everybody knew what we were talking about. But I'm discovering, especially among young adults that are um, being introduced to the topic of prophecy, especially the book of Revelation, that all these words and subjects that we used to take for granted, there's a whole new generation of people that have no idea what we're talking about. And so just even in a recent Bible study I was teaching, I had mentioned the word rapture and I could see on their faces that some (laughs) are thinking, what? And I knew I better explain what I mean by this. So I think it would be great if either one of you or both of you would just give um, like a real brief summary of what we mean by the word rapture. I I would like to hear from Tom um, because I think for you, Tom, even uh, you, you would have been in that group of people Mm -hmm. not all that long ago, right? When you sat in that you talked, and I think in our first uh, session together, you talked about being at Creation Fest, and and one of our friends, a pastor in London, uh, Rob Dingman, he did a, he kind of did a quick overview yeah. of the Book of Revelation, and you were like, "What?" Yeah, yeah, it's it's funny because um, I feel like we read Revelation, we as in like my generation read it, this thing that's like way off in the future. So I almost just kind of sidelined it and was like this idea of a rapture, like I'd heard of it, but it was never part of my like theological understanding because I was like, it's not, it doesn't affect me. Like this is something that happens way in the future. I don't have to care about what that means. I don't have to understand it in any way. It's for the guys like further on. But I guess that like brings me to question like, if we're forgetting about it and we're the next generation of teachers and pastors, will that just be a forgotten theology that just doesn't get taught anymore? Yeah. So yeah, it, I'm reading it and it makes sense to me. Like I'm going like chapter by chapter and I'm like the idea of a rapture, mm-hmm. especially like given the Old Testament context too, like makes sense. It's yeah. not super explicit, um, which is another interesting thing. Like why, like, yeah. I'll throw that back at like, why, why isn't it as explicit as, yeah. as a rapture? Well, it's, a, I mean, that's an interesting question because, you know, it is true that it's not as clear in the biblical text as, as we would like it to yeah. be. I mean, that's why there's debate, right? That's why 
some, you know, some people just flat out deny that there yeah. is a rapture. You know, yeah. John and I, uh, we, we always have been great admirers of the, of the late, great Dr. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Mm -hmm. And I mean, anytime he ever even mentioned a rapture, it was always uh, in, a, in a very negative yeah. way. He would call it the secret rapture and he just had <laughs> no time for it, you know. Uh, and, and some people would even say that the rapture is a doctrine that was developed in the 1800s and they'll go back to uh, certain names uh, that, you know, around this group of brethren in, in the UK at the time. And yet... I think that, I've said this before, I think what's happened, a classic thing that happened is the rapture as, as a doctrine, as an understanding was lost in history. Mm -hmm. So you find it mm. in the apostolic writing. I mean, Paul writes about it and he right. even says, uh, he says, behold, I show you a mystery. That's right. and, and I think you could even maybe argue that the whole... Um, idea of the rapture was a specific revelation that God gave to Paul mm. to reveal to the church because he's the one who basically spells it out, right? Yeah. In 1 Thessalonians 4, as we've already mentioned, and 1 Corinthians 15. He tells us about living people uh, at the time of Christ who will not die, but who will be instantaneously glorified. Yeah. So the rapture is basically a generation of Christians that won't see death. Now, Oftentimes in our cultural moment, and this has been happening for the past 40 years, 50 years, it's almost been the rapture sort of was reduced to uh, just a, the great ex escape. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, you know, it's like if I'm having a bad day, man, I just want the rapture to yeah. come, you know, yeah. because mm -hmm. I can't find a parking place and I'm, I'm bummed out. My girlfriend left me. Man, I want to get out of here. Yeah. You know, so yeah. very shallow perspective on the rapture. And I think that for some people that kind of, you know, turned them off. But if you think of what the rapture really is, it's, it, it is in a sense an escape. Of course, it's an escape from the judgment that's going to come on the earth. Like we read in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus said, uh, because you have kept my word to persevere, remember, to the church of Philadelphia, I will keep you from the hour of trial which will come up on the whole earth to test all those who dwell on the face of yeah, the earth. Yeah. So it is an escape. Yeah, yeah. But I think the thing that's missed so often, and I think what it is more than anything else, it is the public display of the victory of Jesus over that's death. So Amen. I mean, to me, that's like, because, you know, listen, today most people don't know Jesus rose from the dead. Many people deny that he rose from the dead. Um, he's going to demonstrate his victory over death by taking a whole generation of mm. followers of his and they're not going to die. Yeah, that's good. And, and that's what the rapture is. People are, uh, you know, the dead, in, the dead shall be raised first and we who are alive and remain, whoever that is, we shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Yeah, yeah. And it's important for people to, to realize this isn't the, the only time in scripture we see people going to heaven without dying. Yeah. You know, we know from Genesis chapter 5, and then um, you compare that with Hebrews 11, that a man named Enoch went to heaven without dying. The Bible says that God took him. Mm -hmm. um, Elijah was taken to heaven without dying. And so the, the difference between the rapture of the church, and, and the word rapture simply means to be seized, to be caught up, to be taken. And, um, and it's, a, it's a word that's 
um, that's used to describe this event that, as Brian shared, is in 1 Thessalonians 4, it's in 1 Corinthians 15, John chapter 14. Um, but the difference is, is that um, Elijah and Enoch, they went to heaven individually, but yeah. the church is going to go up collectively. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing, too, that I think is really important for us to say, because one of the pushback I got um, in talking about the rapture is people will, will sarcastically ask the question, well, how many second comings do you believe in? Yeah. Yeah. And my response is, well, I only believe in one second coming, but it happens in two phases, yeah. right? right? And so for people to understand the distinction that the rapture of the church is when Christ comes for the church. Mm -hmm. The return of Christ, the visible return of Christ to the earth is when Christ comes with his church. Mm -hmm. And so we only believe in one second coming, yeah. but we believe that it happens in two phases. Yeah, and you know, I think we have a great uh, precedent for that because there's two phases to the first coming. That's right. And I think a lot of people never really think about that because... Uh, and, and, you know, when you think about it, too, I thought this thing, this thought crossed my mind today, and I had not thought of this before, uh, even though I've even written about the two aspects of the first coming of Christ. The first coming of Jesus, remember, Jesus came first to Bethlehem, mm. but it, but he was, uh, you know, it was obscure. I mean, it was just, you know, a few shepherds and yeah. just a few local people. There was this angelic host, but it was really kind of a secret arrival yeah. in many ways, yeah. you know. The pronouncement of the Messiah did not come for 30 years. Mm -hmm. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the donkey on the day that we call Palm Sunday, mm -hmm. in, in celebration of that, that was the day of the actual declaration of his Messiahship yeah. to the nation and to the world. Yeah. So, you know, he's got kind of a secret arrival initially, <laughs> and then he's got a public arrival. And I think that you can say the same thing about the second coming. Mm -hmm. And so, and you know, in the first coming, he revealed himself just to that small group of people, you know, of course, Mary and Joseph and, you know, those, yeah, yeah. Uh, Elizabeth and John, uh, uh, Zacharias and, and, and them. So, yeah, I think that that's a, that's a good thing. You know, so, so some people say, um, well, why, you know, I've heard this a lot over the years. The, a lot of pushback on the, on the rapture, again, goes back to the escapist idea. Well, you just want to get out of suffering. You don't want to suffer. And, well, no, we don't want to suffer necessarily, but sometimes we have to. But I think it's important that we do recognize that um, the church has suffered and will continue to suffer and is suffering today under the uh, persecution and oppression that comes through Satan mm. through various means. The tribulation period is not, it's not satanically, um, it doesn't originate with the devil, you know, persecuting the church. The tribulation period is God punishing the world. That's right. So when you think of what, it, what is, the, if you think of the purpose of the tribulation, then what you realize is the church has no place because yeah. the purpose of the tribulation is, number one, to break the power of Israel. When the power of the holy people is finally shattered. So we know that this is the day of uh, the time of Jacob's trouble. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, so it has a specific objective for the nation of Israel. And it's also to punish the wicked. Yeah. You know, Isaiah 13, behold, I come out of my place uh, to, you know, punish the world for its evil. So the church doesn't fit into that place because 
Christ has borne our wrath. Yeah. That's what, we're, we're not appointed to wrath because Jesus has taken our wrath. Yeah. So if you think about the, the purpose of the tribulation, mm. it doesn't make sense that the church yeah. would be in it. Yeah. yeah, and I feel like if, if God was just and merciful by nature, for, for him not to have mercy on his people and pull them out of it, but also be just in the way that he deals with the actions of people, it, it contradicts who God is as a, as a divine creator. Um, yeah. But there's a ton of, ton of questions coming in about um, the rapture. So um, you said about two resurrections earlier, John. Um, two phases two phases. the one coming. Yeah. Um, so someone said, if there are two resurrections or two phases, which one includes the tribulation saints? Wait. Yeah, well, we're not talking about the resurrection. Yeah. We're talking we're about, about the second coming of Christ, yeah. that there isn't two second comings. Mm -hmm. But it, in the second coming, it happens in two phases. Yeah. There's the rapture, when Christ comes for the church, and then there's the visible return of mm -hmm. Christ. That's mm -hmm. when Christ comes with the church. So the resurrection is... Um, the, the way that that question's asked, it's, it's a different question. And we'll get to it when yeah. we get to Revelation 20 yeah. Yeah. And, and we'll uh, address that topic. And I think that's, the, that's definitely the problem with, with my millennial generation is that we probably don't understand the difference between the rapture and the second coming. Because mm -hmm. there's this idea that like Jesus is in the sky and we meet him. And so do people see that? Is that the second coming? Or is the rapture, like what is the difference between those things which... You just answered. Yeah, and you know, I know for me, um, just, gosh, I'm trying to remember how long ago, but I, I recently revisited the, the, the story of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Mm. And it was fascinating just to, to see that one of the indications, the clues that Japan was going to attack is before Japan hit, the, um, hit Pearl Harbor is they recalled all their ambassadors. And they basically said, you know, clear out the embassy, clear out the consulates, come back to Japan. Mm -hmm. And and that should have been an indication that something was about to happen. Yeah. And I just thought, isn't it interesting that Second Corinthians refers to us as the ambassadors of Christ? <laughs> you know, and so the idea that God's judgment is going to hit the planet, but before he does that, he calls his ambassadors home. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's great. I love that. <laughs> that's, a good, yeah. that's a good analogy. So... Um, so again, here in chapter four, verse one, uh, this would be the place. I, I don't know if I said it since we've been live here or if we just said it earlier amongst ourselves, but I'll, I'll just say it again for clarification. Uh, you know, people sometimes will ask, well, where is the rapture in Revelation? This would be the place yeah. where we would see yeah. the rapture in Revelation. And, and like I said, from this point forward, once we get through chapters uh, four and five, and, and as we move into chapter six, there, there is no reference to the church. The next time you find the church, you find Jesus coming back to the earth in chapter 19, and you have the armies of heaven coming with him clothed in white uh, robes, which is the righteousness mm. of the saints. And yeah. of course, that's we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So, so I think we... Uh, have to move on yes, <laughs> because we still got a ways to go here. But um, so just we, we talked for a second about the living creatures. Mm. You know, the parallel, uh, there's a couple of parallel passages for the living creatures. Isaiah chapter six. In Isaiah chapter six, we're, they're given the, the title of seraphim. seraphim. Mm. And seraphim it simply means the flaming ones. And um, 
So, so in Isaiah 6 and in Revelation 4, I think you have the, the same uh, creatures being described, and they essentially say the same thing. Well, right? it's interesting, too, in Ezekiel, yeah. there's the, the spiritual beings that are described with the four faces, yeah. and they're, they're called, in Ezekiel 10, cherubim. Yeah, and the interesting thing about them is they have four wings, not six wings, mm. and they have, each have four faces, where it doesn't, it, here it doesn't indicate yeah. that they have four faces. Mm. You know, so I'm, because, yeah, I was looking at Ezekiel today, and I'm thinking, wow, this, this is interesting, yeah, you know. Totally. And then when you see what the seraphim in Isaiah do are, are exactly what is happening yeah. here. Holy, holy, holy. In Ezekiel, you don't have that particular thing happening. Yeah. You have other things going on with those, those creatures. So, I mean, this is where it just gets so extremely fascinating. Strange. You know, <laughs> strange, yes, for yeah. sure. But, um, but fascinating. And like I was saying earlier, when I was thinking about, you know, these different creatures and their... The, the way they're described here, I, I was just thinking about, I mean, so many of the, you know, the movies today, you know, with, um, you know, whether it's the, uh, the Avengers or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. I mean, you, you got these superhero kind of creatures and sometimes they're looking a lot like yeah, what's being totally, described yeah. here. So it's pretty fascinating stuff, but let's, um, so the four living creatures, each having six wings were full of eyes around and within they do not rest day and night saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Mm. Uh, you know, it's, here's just a, on a quick note. Um, isn't it interesting that their holy is a thrice holy God? Mm-hmm. It, why didn't they just say holy or holy, holy? Or why didn't they quadruple it? Why did they say holy, holy, holy? I think there's a hint yeah. of the triunity in the praise itself. Yeah. I love that because I, I think that um, the way that sometimes people think about God, they, they think of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit um, in carrying different values. Mm-hmm. You know, especially the Holy Spirit. You know, like some people talk about the Holy Spirit like he's the weird uncle that is at the family <laughs> reunion that you just don't even want to talk to, you know. It's like the Father I get, Jesus, hey, I totally get. Holy Spirit, let's just keep him in the back room and let's just not have a conversation. He's just too weird. But but God is one God, three persons, and each person is equal in deity, equal in glory, equal in power, and they're equal in their holy nature. Yeah. And, yeah. and not one is to be praised at the expense of the other, mm. but each person carries the value and the worth that, that deserves all of our praise and obedience. What's, what's really fascinating about this, though, is once these like, beasts and these creatures and these angels, they, once they sing this song, everyone just bows down at this throne. Mm. Everyone just turns to worship and falls flat on their faces and is just like worshiping God in ways that like we probably will never experience until the day we come to heaven and we get to be a part of this. Um, So obviously like we could skip really quick, but there's the idea of all these eyes inside and outside. That's such a grotesque thing, but what what does that mean? (laughs) Like eyes inside the body body and outside is, what do you think? Well, I think... I think, you know, symbolically, I think it's real, but I think symbolically it's just talk, you know, with the, uh, you know, eyes is the, com- the knowledge, the understanding, mm-hmm. you know, so these mm-hmm. are full of, full of knowledge, yeah. I think. But, I, I, you know, it does seem freaky to us, but yet on the other hand, 
there, I'm sure there's a splendor and a glory to this yeah. that when we see it, we will be like, oh, that's what it looks mm -hmm. like. Not like, you know, like yeah, the, yeah. the other, like, oh, that just sounds <laughs> really bizarre. I don't think I want to see that, mm -hmm. <laughs> that creature with eyes everywhere, yeah. you know. Um, but, I, but I think let's get to the, um, you know, as they, uh, the elders, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, they worship him who lives forever and ever, they cast their crowns mm. before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. So. Uh, the NIV says by your will they exist and have their being. Mm. And I think, wow, that is so, uh, you know, all things um, are created by the Lord. Every living thing there is, whether it's microscopic or, you know, wh whatever, you know, the largest creature, yeah. the smallest creature, mm -hmm. all things were created by him. You know, just this idea, this, uh, this has always struck me, just this idea of being. Mm -hmm. You know, only God has being within himself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Everything else is uh, a product of his creative power. Yeah. So we, we, we're human beings, but we don't possess being yeah. within ourselves. Yeah. We didn't get ourselves here, and we can't keep ourselves here. Mm -hmm. uh, God is the only one who possesses being within himself. That, that in and of itself is so... Yeah fascinating. And I think that's my greatest takeaway from, from this is the idea of like, um, I was reading Hebrews 11 and the idea that heaven is a city with a solid foundation and the designer and builder is God. Like God has the blueprints, but also he doesn't just think this stuff out. He's like, you know what, I'm going to build it too. And so I, I love the idea of like, we get this glimpse into heaven, what it's like, and it's not this fantasy land. It's not this like imagination thing that like, we, we just don't understand. Like, we kind of get a view of what that might be like. And for me, that's exciting. It'll change kind of the perspective that I have in worship and the way that I approach um, the church itself. So, so John, what's your, what's your kind of biggest takeaway from this? Yeah, for me, I just love the fact that the presence of God is filled with worship. So good. And um, the word worship, it shows up um, once here in chapter four, and then it's going to show up again in chapter five. But I love this word. I mean, there's different words in the New Testament for worship that's used, but this one, it's pros kuneo. And pros means to turn toward, and kuneo means to kiss. And I think what a beautiful description of what heartfelt worship is supposed to be. It's homage, but it's more than just um, recognizing that he is a greater authority and power. But there is this heart that is turned toward God and that just says, I want intimate relationship. I just want to love on you. I just want to give you kisses. Yeah. And, um, and, and just the way that heaven, you know, that worship happens all the time. Yeah. You know, I, I've heard some people say, oh, I don't know if heaven sounds appealing to me because you're just describing heaven as one perpetual church service. <laughs> and I, I don't know if I could handle that. And, and they've probably been to a boring church service. And I could imagine if they're thinking that, that's going to be forever. I don't know if I want a part of that. You know what I mean? But 
here it's like to think that these angels night and day are declaring holy, 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 and they're never getting tired of it. It, Every time they say it, it's as if they're saying it for the very first time. And I keep thinking, man, what if my heart could just turn toward the Lord and to see him like that. And that's where I was even thinking about the eyes within and without. I I wonder if that even has anything to do with a full awareness. Mm -hmm. Like if we see the Lord and we're aware of who he is, that we don't get tired of proskuneo. Yeah, I thought that same thing today. I thought about those those four living beings and how exactly that it's not it's not a burden. Yeah. It's not like, mm-hmm. oh no, we gotta do this again. I mean, this is they they exist to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, wow. So amazing. Um yeah. chapter five. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, all right. All right. I'm gonna read us chapter five and then we're gonna jump in. And we're right here at almost the eight o'clock mark. So um, we thought we were going to get through chapter four a little quicker, but <laughs> here we go. And I saw in the right hand. Okay, so here, here's the scene. Um, you know, there's, there's God on the throne. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy? to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made them kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the four living creatures, or the living creatures, and the elders. The number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor, glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, amen. Mm -hmm. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. Wow. Amen. Amen. <laughs> right. Amen. Amen. And you know, the the 
the fact that this scene is one that we will all participate yeah. in is so absolutely mind-boggling. Yeah. And you know, as even as I was reading over these verses this week, it was making me, um, you know, it's just making me think of the opportunities we currently have to worship the Lord, mm -hmm. you know? Um, we don't want to... Uh, <laughs> I was thinking of Pastor Chuck, you know, used to talk about the person who gets there and doesn't have a clue, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, hey, what's going on here, you know? <laughs> um, you know, we don't want to be that person, right? We want to we want to get experience in this. And I, and I was even thinking about mm -hmm. myself, you know, so many times you can just, you know, you're in ministry, you're doing everything, worship is happening and you're doing something else. Yeah. And it's like, man, you know, to take the time to stop and to really... Uh, worship and honor and bow down before the Lord and knowing that this is, uh, this is in a sense, it's a, it's a dress rehearsal yeah. for yeah. what is yet to come. It's amazing. Yeah. 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 Um, so, the, so the last chapter ends with this worship service, this worship moment. And then I imagine all of this is still going on. Well, like we, we talk about movies a little bit, I just feel like the camera then swings to this throne and zooms in while all this worship and this like organized chaos, so to speak, is still happening. And we see this um, right hand of him who's seated on the throne and there's a scroll which is sealed with seven seals. What's that all about? Well, first of all, I, I just want to comment real quick on the, um, you know, it's just amazing here. There's a a, a good parallel passage to read maybe tonight, you know, after we're done, before you go to bed, read Daniel chapter 7, mm -hmm. because Daniel chapter 7 is the kind of the parallel to this, where you have the Ancient of Days seated upon the throne, which is a reference to God the Father, yeah. and then you have one like the Son of Man who's brought to him and dominion is given to him, and that, that is, that's Daniel's version of what we are reading right here. Mm -hmm. But I always thought it was fascinating that you know, because some, some people overemphasize the, um, you know, the fact that God is spirit to the point that God doesn't have a form. Mm -hmm. But I think here we have to clearly admit that God must have a form yeah. because he's sitting on a throne. He's visible. He's not visible to us right now because <laughs> he's invisible. But for those in his presence, he's visible. There's mm -hmm. a visible form there. And he's, he's holding something in his hand. Yeah. In his right hand. Yeah. He's holding this scroll. John, what is the scroll? <laughs> <laughs> well, we know that this scroll is important because it's in the right hand of God. And, um, and obviously, you know, there, we're talking about this backstage, that there have been a lot of different ideas, opinions that have been um, suggested regarding what this scroll is. But um, I think... I think you and I were talking about this, Brian, that where it just makes a lot of sense is when we look at what's happening here in light of Jeremiah 32. Mm -hmm. And there in Jeremiah 32, we have um, a situation where there is a sealed scroll, which was a title deed to some property. And it's, it's, uh, it's fascinating when you think about like in Jewish culture, in the right of redemption for land, that um, it was customary that, that as contracts were being written up, that the terms and conditions would be written and then they would roll up that term and condition, then they would seal it. And then the next set of terms and conditions would be written and then the skull would be further sealed or rolled up and sealed. And, and when, when that piece of property is being claimed, 
each of those seals have to be broken and the terms and conditions have to be met. And what I think is fascinating about this scroll um, is in, in Revelation chapter 11, um, we read that when the seventh seal is finally broken, we read in verse 15, the seventh angel, um, as, or actually when the, the, the trumpet, uh, and, and then we hear the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And so there is a claiming that is going to happen, but it's because these terms and conditions are being met. And so I, I personally would lean towards this being the title deed to the earth. Yeah, and, and I think as we mentioned among ourselves, it's important to understand that the way we are going to best interpret the book of Revelation is the Bible interprets itself, really. And so as we look at something like this, this is the question, is there anywhere else in scripture where we see anything similar yeah. And Jeremiah 32 is the place that I think would give us, you know, at least something to go on. Mm -hmm. Apart from that, we're sort of left clueless. But I think it seems um, it seems like the, the right uh, understanding. If you think of this, uh, you know, um, as uh, the title deed to earth itself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Pastor Chuck used to, walk us through that scenario. You know, God creates the world. He gives it to man. Man forfeits it to Satan. And then how is it ever going to be brought back? Yeah. It was forfeited by man. It has to be then redeemed by man, but there's no man that's worthy. Yeah. And that's takes us right to the next part of the of the chapter, right? Then I saw the strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. Mm. Wow. So no, no person, none, mm. of, uh, none of the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, to use C.S. Lewis language, uh, are able yeah. No one is able. And you can understand why John would be weeping because if, if this scroll isn't opened, then the, all the prophecies, the events leading up to the return of Christ and the kingdom of God, um, it wouldn't happen. And for, for centuries, the church has been praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But in order for that, that prayer to be answered, those seals have to be broken. And so for John to hear, no one's worthy, but there is someone, yeah. you know, that, that's huge. And then I feel like there's this moment where John is like, weeping he's snotty he's like really like I don't know what's gonna happen he's like looking around like this and he looks and expects this majestic kind of like you know like you just expect like this big buff ready to go can crack this seal and then he turns and Brian what does he see <laughs> well let's let's look and see what it says so because the elder um you know and and that picture Tom, apart from the snot. Um, <laughs> I mean, we're talking about some convulsing. Yeah. We're talking about like a wailing, yeah. really, what yeah. John is doing. Because it's just like a hopeless, it just seems like a hopeless situation. Yeah, CSB says, I wept and wept. Yeah. And, and so, but I love this. One of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, 
the lion of the tribe mm -hmm. of Judah, the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose the seven seals. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Wow. Isn't That's that amazing? amazing. But, but I think how significant. The, the elder refers to him as the lion of the yeah. tribe of Judah, mm -hmm. but he's seen as the lamb who was slain. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this one verse, um, the, the most vivid memory I have was when you, when you were teaching on Sunday mornings through the book of Revelation. And I know exactly where I was sitting. I was sitting right there. It was like the third or fourth row. And you, and I, I remember I was going through a really difficult season in my life. And, and then you were telling the story about how you were going through a really difficult time. Yeah. And as you were reading through Revelation, you read those words, do not weep. Yeah. And then the attention on the lion of the tribe of Judah, yeah. he's conquered. And I don't know, I don't know if this was intentional or whatever, but at least for me at that moment, it looked like as you were telling that story and you read that verse, you were panning the audience and you were just <laughs> staring at me. And it's interesting that you made that C.S. Lewis reference because the moment you said that, I just imagine Aslan just barreling <laughs> down the field to come to my rescue. Wow. And I can't tell you how many times that moment from that sermon here at Calvary Costa Mesa, yeah. God has sustained me in yeah. those years since you've preached it. Yeah, yeah. and you know, I can, I can, I, I tell that story sometimes personally to people who are desperate and, and then I occasionally share it in preaching. I cannot tell that story without getting choked up. Yeah. I, I mean, it's like I, I'm doing it and I'm telling it and then I just get right to that point and all of a sudden I'm mm. just, you know, I start to lose it a little bit because for me too, like with you, it was such a moment. I, here's the crazy thing. I was teaching the book of Revelation mm. at the time. I was teaching chapter five that wow. night and it was a very, very difficult season in our lives. It was probably the most challenging thing we, we've ever gone through and it had to do with one of our children and um, it just, you know, and I was trying to study, to teach, and I was looking at the text through the tears rolling down mm, wow. my face. And, and when I read, see, I'll get choked up right now again. When I read those words, do not weep, the lion of the tribe of Judah has yeah. prevailed. It was, it, God just said, basically, simply, Brian, I've got this covered. Amen. Don't so weep. Good. Wipe your tears and go teach this chapter because yeah. I have got this covered. And I mean, he did. And, you know, and, and I, Cheryl said, Brian, make sure you tell that story tonight <laughs> because it's, it's so hopeful, yeah. you know, because we can come, come to those places where, you know, like John is, he's wailing, he's sobbing because it seems it's an impossible situation. We are forever stuck in this place of sin and darkness and corruption. And he's weeping over that. But don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah has so prevailed or uh, he has triumphed or he has conquered. Whatever word you want to use, yeah. he's done it. Wow. Yeah, so good. It's, it's great because um, I'll skip over, but we'll come back in a sec. Um, each of the people, once, once the lamb does what we'll tell you guys what he does, um, each of these elders fell down and they're holding harps and just these golden bowls full of incense. And I love this idea of, um, I'm from traditional church, Church of England, and 
um, you can walk into some of these old buildings and um, there might have been like a traditional service happening early that morning. You can still see the incense rise in the rafters mm -hmm. up there. Mm -hmm. And it's just this, um, and it happens during the prayer time. And it's just this amazing picture of like our prayers go up. And like you said, like none of those experiences are wasted. None of those tears, God collects them. And like we see here, those, those prayers and those moans and those groans, they, they end up in these bowls of incense that these, yeah. these, these guys are holding. And then they end up being poured out all on the throne of God. And I'm just like, yeah. if you ever felt like your prayers weren't heard, this is the, this right. is the part yeah. of the Bible that I'm like, yeah. no, but really, God yeah. hits and it. It, Yeah, they're, they're not wasted. Yeah. They're, yeah. They're, they're reaching their destination. Yeah. And there's a time yeah. when they will be answered. Yeah. So good. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, we got to put the pedal to the metal here, fellas. Um, so, um, the lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns, seven mm -hmm. eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Mm. Wow. So amazing. Um, again, going back to the Daniel passage, right. you know, yeah. the parallel there is, is so phenomenal. I was reading Matthew, um, I'm reading through Matthew in the mornings, and I, I read that uh, in chapter 17, I read the Transfiguration account again, you know. And as I was reading the Transfiguration account, um, you know, right there, the, the reference in the Transfiguration account is to, um, Jesus refers to himself as a son of man. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I thought, I, I don't know why I didn't mm -hmm. see that in the transfiguration account. But this is, <laughs> and so, so for them, you know, they're like, this is that moment. Yeah. We're, we're having a little uh, microcosm mm -hmm. moment of that reality that's like to come. Previews of upcoming yeah. attractions. Exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, but let's talk for a second about uh, as a lamb as though it had been slain. Mm. So, I think what we're talking about here, now some, some people have uh, taken this and uh, kind of taken it to the level that we're, we're going to see a grotesque vision of Jesus um, as he was brutalized, mm. you know. Uh, we know from Isaiah that he was beaten beyond recognition and all of that. Um, I, I don't think we have to go that far with it. I think what we're talking about here is as though he had been slain, the recognition, because he still bears the wounds, yeah. right? That he will, um, he will be seen in that. It, those wounds will be clear, yeah. you know? Yeah, and I feel like we see um, Jesus comes back after the three days and he, he comes to everyone with these wounds in his, in his hands and the pierce in his side. And I feel like, God kind of wants to remind us of that moment without, like, just scaring us to death. Like, I feel like if if I came and, like, John was Jesus and he was beaten out of beyond recognition, I don't think that connects people to God in any way. But I, I think this moment in heaven um, allows people to to remember the, the death that Jesus paid mm -hmm. for our price, um, but also we can continue in this moment of worship and celebration despite all of that stuff. Yeah. Well, because of that stuff. Yeah. I think that's why just the whole idea of the whole Christ, like W-H-O-L-E, yeah. yeah. is so important because here we see the lamb um, that was slain, but he's also the lion of yeah. the tribe of Judah. Yeah. 
He's the lamb that was slain, but he also has the seven horns, which is complete authority and power. And he has the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. I mean, he's, he's omniscient. He's, he, his, his ability of, uh, to see and to know by the spirit with the fullness of the spirit, it's glorious. And, and, um, and I, and I think that sometimes people have a tendency to pick, pick and choose. Like, I, I want the friendly Jesus. I'll take the lamb that was slain. Other people are more austere. And it's like, look, I never want to smile, so I'll take the lion Jesus. But he's both. Yeah. And I think, I think that if we understand that, that's going to impact how we worship Christ. Mm, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That, that made me think of something, but um, what was it that it made me think of? It just made me, made me think a good thought that I will keep to myself because I can't remember what it was. Um, but let's, let's go to verse 8. Now, when he had taken the scroll, um, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song saying. And so this is uh, commonly referred to as the song of the redeemed. Um, this is the song of the church, really. And this is another one of those things that point us toward the fact that this is the church yeah. that is here now. Because notice what it says. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. And here's the key. Out of every tribe... Mm-hmm every language, every people, and every nation. That's the church. That's right. Right? So uh, the gospel, when Jesus comes, um, he, he basically commissions the disciples in Matthew 28, go into all the world, preach the gospel to all nations or all ethnicities, all people groups. So, and these are those who are now singing this song. So, yeah. Uh, again, this is kind of going back to where we started with the idea of, of chapter 4, verse 1, speaking about the rapture. Here you have um, this group of people, ostensibly the church, and you would think that it would have to be the entire church, not just part of the church, mm-hmm. singing this song at this point. Yeah. And what, what I've always loved about those words, especially for someone that's been on the mission field, and I know... Brian, you've been in Europe on the mission field, and this is kind of like your mission field, yeah, yeah. Tom, you know, and... Um, <laughs> Thank you for coming. Yeah, yeah. of course. <laughs> but um, but this, this has always encouraged me that the mission of Jesus is not going to fail. Mm. You know, um, we see people um, from every people group that's represented in this, um, in this uh, listing of, of people of the redeemed. And, um, and I think that, I think that's so encouraging. In fact, I, there's this one story of the Morovians where, um, as it was in the 1700s, as they were launching out into missions, there were these two guys from Copenhagen. One was a potter and the other was a carpenter. And these guys, because of Revelation 5, they actually sold themselves into slavery, and they got into boats so that they can go tell the slaves of Africa, in Africa, about Christ. And this became the, the motto for the Moravian missionaries. As, they, as this slave ship was pulling out 
and these guys would never be free for the rest of their life, they cried out, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. But these guys just, they got it. It's like Jesus is worthy and he's worthy of this. Wow. There's this, yeah, there's this lovely moment in verse 13 and it says, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. Like that, like if that didn't say everybody was worshiping God, like I don't know what does. And so it goes on to say, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. I just think that's amazing. That is amazing. And just one final quick thing just you know just this idea of worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing you know you think well how 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 does he receive that and in a sense he receives it from us we give him those things and he's worthy to receive those things from us so he's worthy to receive all of our power that's right He's worthy to receive all of our riches and and all of our wisdom and all of our strength and honor and glory and all of those things, everything that we are, he is worthy to receive from us. And man, if that isn't just something that motivates you to just say, Lord, like those guys, you know, I, Lord, I want to give, I want to give everything to you. I don't, I, you're worthy to receive everything that I ever have or, uh, you know, might have or, Whatever I am or might be, you're worthy of it all. Yeah, and I and I I do want to say this because I think this is really important mm-hmm. because I've heard a lot of young people push back um, on on the study of the Book of Revelation and just the whole thing that we've been talking about today with the rapture and 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 there's this growing cynicism that says, hey, if you're always talking about that stuff, then then we're not going to be motivated to do anything in this, you know, in the now when there's so many needs. It's like, because all we want to do is pack up our stuff and wait for the rapture and what yeah. good is learning about all this stuff. And I'm, I'm left scratching my head because I, I'm looking at these guys. I'm like, you know what? It's because of Revelation 4 and 5 that when I graduated from high school, I packed up my suitcase and I moved to the mission field. <laughs> it's because of Revelation 4 and 5, knowing that Jesus can come back at any time and he's the lamb who is worthy to receive all glory, power, and praise that I wanted to go and reach as many people as I can or could with the gospel with the time that I have. This didn't push me into the dark corners to do nothing. This motivated me toward missions. Yeah, yeah. And, and this will motivate you toward, I think even just to make it a little bit broader, it will motivate you toward the will of God for your life, yeah, whatever right. that is. That's so good. for you, it was to go do that. Yeah. And, but not everybody's called to go do that, but everybody's called to go do something. That's right. And this is a, this is a, a motivating um, picture here when we see who Christ is and, you know, just, yes, giving ourselves entirely to him. And, you know, John and I, uh, I'm older than John, as you could probably tell by looking at us. But, uh, just by a few months. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, sometimes we talk about uh, our our generation, um, you know, I was like his youth pa- youth pastor, but you know, we're, we're still you know part of, part of that. Um, how there was that that time where there was just uh, such a desire to serve the Lord, yeah. it was an, a, kind of an abandonment to 
whatever else we're doing, let's make sure we're serving Christ right. and we're living in the call that God has on our lives. Yeah. And, and as we close tonight, we just want to encourage uh, each and every one, remember, worthy is the Lamb That's to right. receive yeah. what, whatever you have to offer, um, small or great, uh, give it all to the Lord. He's worthy. And you'll never regret it. You'll never get to the end of your life and look back and think, oh, gosh, how, you know, I spent my whole life serving Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, you will, uh, people, you don't regret that. Uh, if you don't do that, you definitely will have regrets, but you never regret doing that. So good. So, so uh, do we have any questions? We do. We have a lot of questions. A lot of questions. Uh oh. <laughs> so, That's not good. Um, so we got three minutes. Got three minutes. Let's go. <laughs> so, if no one could open the seal, uh, would Satan retain power over the earth to wreak havoc and hate? Well, you know, of course, this is one of those hypotheticals. Hypothetical, yeah. No, um, it, it couldn't be that way. There, there was someone to open the seal. Mm -hmm. So thank God. You know, God didn't leave us stranded with, yeah. well, sorry, there's no one to do it. Um, is the rapture a new theology, and why didn't the early church fathers see it? Oh, I think you answered it, Brian. I mean, yeah. this is like Paul the Apostle was writing about it. And, um, and even Paul, um, he really expressed an imminent, um, a belief in the imminent return when he used the, uh, the pronouns we. And so I think that in every age and every generation, um, believers um, have been and should be expecting Christ to return in their lifetime. Mm -hmm. um, I think that people timestamp it, like Brian mentioned earlier to like John Darby, you know, back in the 1800s. But I think that all Darby did was remind the church of a doctrine that's already been there in the New Testament. Yeah. So we're not quoting John Darby tonight. We're quoting Paul. Yeah. We're quoting uh, uh, Jesus in John 14. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it was, you know, like I, I said, I never finished that thought earlier, but, you know, because some people, when you would say, well, I think it was a doctrine that got lost throughout the history of the church, and people sometimes will push back on that. Oh, well, how could that happen? But, you know, the central doctrine of the Christian faith got lost for a uh, right. thousand years. Yeah. And that's the doctrine of, of the grace of God, which is, you know, there's no ambiguity in scripture about grace and salvation mm -hmm. by faith through, you know, grace through faith. But it got lost. Yeah. It got lost. So if, if a lesser doctrine like the rapture, uh, of course, it could easily get lost. And it was, uh, it's in the apostolic writings um, and it wasn't until about the third century when there really was a shift. And um, like with Augustine and, and people like that, Origen and some of those uh, around that time, they, um, they were the ones, you know, because the church lives under the... You know, and then Christ will come, you know, when we finish the job of, mm -hmm. of Christianizing yeah. the world or yeah. whatever. So, but, but those ideas really took root more in the, you know, late second, early to mid third century. So, um, yeah. 
That's yeah. a great point. Yeah. Um, so did John see God here in these chapters with his eyes, like physically? Because didn't Jesus say that no man has seen God at any time? Please clarify. Well, I think the, the description in chapter four isn't necessarily a physical form, as, but more of just the radiance of his glory. I mean, if you see there, it was described as carnelian and sardius and like a, and a throne around the rainbow. I think it was just that expression of the radiance of, of however much he, he was allowed to see the glory of God, yeah. but the radiance of it. Mm. That's good. Um, someone says, Brian mentions how the church isn't appointed to wrath, but couldn't you argue that none of the seals or trumpets are said to be of his wrath? It isn't until the seven bowl judgments that it states that what is happening is his wrath being poured out. Is this possible? Well, we touched on that a little bit ourselves behind uh, the <laughs> scenes tonight because that is uh, what, what is known as the um, pre-wrath position that um, it's not until the specific statement that the wrath begins to be poured out. The church is here until that point. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's kind of a complicated view. I think it's a problematic view. Um, I think to say that the first seal, which is the unleashing of the Antichrist on the planet, is not the wrath of God. Uh, I think it is the wrath of God. <laughs> I think it's very much the wrath of God. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I mean, people do argue that. I mean, that is the pre-wrath position. But well, we, in, we in, in Revelation chapter 6, when the seals are being broken, it's, it's called the wrath of the Lamb. Yeah. You know, so, um, so to, to say it's not God's wrath, it's not God's judgment, I, I just think that that's a really hard case to make. Yeah. And I think it's important for people that are listening to understand that what we mean by pre-wrath, we're not talking a pre-tribulation rapture. Mm-hmm. Pre-tribulation is we believe that the church is going to be raptured before the tribulation begins. Pre-wrath mm-hmm. puts the rapture towards the end of the tribulation. So they teach that the church will go through three-fourths of the tribulation and that's why some scholars even refer to it to avoid confusion, not as pre-wrath, but the three-fourth perspective. <laughs> so <laughs> the three-fourth. Um, there's sure. the mid, which is half, and then there's <laughs> so the, the three-fourth. Three yeah. That's good. Um, someone said they've heard a teaching on the sixth seal rapture. Have you got any thoughts on that interpretation? The sixth seal of rapture. I think that's the same thing. And then our last one, um, what would the green emerald color of the rainbow symbolize? Something beautiful. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> we'll take that. Yeah, I feel like if we get too tied up looking at what those things mean, we can miss the majesty of these chapters. Like, if we're too concerned with colors and, like, ice and all these things and eyes and stuff, like, um, we miss the majesty of the worship and yeah. the throne and, and what it is that God is doing in this moment. Yeah. So, Yeah, and I mean, I think the description is there for a reason. And yeah. somebody who... Uh, is interested enough to look up carnelian and to look up jasper mm-hmm. and to look up emerald and yeah. see what these colors look like. That's great. I mean, my wife reads those colors. She knows exactly what they are. You know, <laughs> she's, she's, I, I'm like, I don't know. What I mean, I know what emerald looks yeah, like. Yeah. And I, I can't remember carnelian. But, it, you know, it's a, it, the, the idea is just, a, you know, beauty. There's just yeah, this right. intense yeah. beauty. So, yeah. But you don't want to get, you know, lost in the, mm-hmm. you know, what is it? The, you don't want to miss the the, woods from the, the trees, trees <laughs> from, from the forest, yeah, you know, or yeah. whatever, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, you got it. Wood yeah. from the trees. <laughs> but that's that's it. All right.
All right, uh, John, you want to? This was fun. You want to close in prayer, John? Yeah. Father, thank you again for the book of Revelation and especially these two chapters where you reminded us of a real place called the presence of God in heaven. And you've reminded us that you exist and you are worthy of our praise and our worship and our obedience. And I pray that all of us could take what we've learned today and and just not only just think about these verses rightly, but apply them rightly um, with the power, the help of your, your spirit. So as we continue um, following you, Lord, we pray that we would live a life that reflects worthy is the lamb in everything. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed today's conversation, make sure you rate us in your podcast app, subscribe and share with a friend. If you're looking for more resources, head over to cccm.com where you'll find a full archive of previous messages. Again, thanks so much for joining us. We hope to see you next time in the Conversation Through Revelation podcast.